0: Ruth chapter 1, and we'll just be reading the first five, five verses, hear now God's holy and inerrant word. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Melon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, would this word be to us a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet. As we are given over now to the exposition of holy scripture, direct our hearts to Christ and give to us a sight of him that would cause us to go into deeper fellowship and greater love and faithfulness to him. Help us, Holy Spirit, illumine our minds and our thoughts. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. It was Ruth's great-grandson, who spoke on behalf of his family when he said this, many are the afflictions of the righteous. David in Psalm 34, 19 confessed that we ought not to be surprised when suffering comes upon God's people, that it is to be expected. The Lord Jesus said it himself, in the world, you will have tribulation. Not that you might have it, but that you will have it. You will have tribulation. And as Christians, I think we understand that. We understand it both theologically and practically. And we understand that because this is our experience. We go through this life with much hardship and adversity. We suffer heartache and loss. We feel great pain and sorrow. Things don't go as planned. Unexpected circumstances happen. In this world, you will have tribulation. But Jesus says this. He says, take heart. In other words, don't let your hearts be troubled. Take heart, for I have overcome the world. Now, you see, that's easier said than done, isn't it? It's because our hearts, they, they tend to be troubled. Our heart's inclination is to be focused on the adversity. And rather than looking through the trial to see Christ, we, we usually, oftentimes, we get fixed on the trial. And thus, in the trial, we, we lose our vision of him. Dear Christian, can I ask you this morning, has this been your experience? Does any of this sound familiar to you? Well, I can tell you that how many times it's been mine. You see, we often forget the good purposes of God when he afflicts us. Listen to David in Psalm 34, 19 again. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But David goes on and he says, the Lord delivers him out of them all. We forget that there is deliverance. Now, what needs to be made clear here is that, that deliverance doesn't always equate to the removal of the trial. It's because sometimes God doesn't take away the sickness, sometimes God doesn't take away the cancer, sometimes things don't get better. Then what what kind of deliverance was David talking about? A greater deliverance, which has to do with the soul a deliverance that clears the heart that he or she might see God, a greater deliverance that takes a man from looking at the temporal and that to the eternal. Listen to the Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon. He said this, There is no university for a Christian like that of sorrow and trial. You see, it's because it's God's objective to teach. He wants to teach us and that to teach us and that in the classroom of affliction. And as we embark on a study in the book of Ruth for these next three Sundays, beloved, this is what we're going to find. This is what God's going to teach us. A story filled with the dark providences of God to bring about deliverance, to bring about salvation through severe suffering. And so my hope and prayer is that this study of Ruth will, will help you, that it will encourage you in the faith, to know, Christian, that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Well, as we come to the book of Ruth, I want you to notice here in chapter 1 that the author informs us of some important details that we should know about. And as any good author does, he sets the stage for which the story is to take place. And in doing so, he makes us aware of three particular details. And these three details will will serve as our outline this morning. And number one, it's this. The time in which the story takes place. That's the first. The second, number two, is the location of where the story occurs. And lastly and thirdly, the people involved in the story. What the writer of Ruth wants us to focus our attention on is to the time and the location, and the people for which all of this takes place. And notice, it only takes place in a matter of only five verses. Well, we begin by looking at the first, by looking at the time. When does the story in the book of Ruth, when does it begin? Look with me in verse 1. It says there, in the days when the judges ruled. And notice this story comes to us on the heels of the book of Judges. And that because it takes place in the days in which the judges ruled. Now, this isn't just a date stamp which we're given to simply locate the moment in history in which the characters of the story live. No, the writer isn't just giving us a chronological description here, but he's giving to us a theological one. He's informing us that this story took place in the worst of times. It was in the days of the judges. I want you to look back to the book of Judges, and notice how the book of Judges, how it ends. Look at with me in uh, chapter 21, verse 25. It says there in, there, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You see, the days of the Judges was a dark period in Israel's history, and if you're a student of the Bible, you'll know that the book of Judges can be pretty much summarized by A repeated cycle, a cycle of events. At the beginning of each cycle, God's people, they they rebelled and they sinned against God, which then incurred the judgment of God. And then the people responded in repentance and cried out to the Lord. And at the end of each cycle, God sent a deliverer, God sent a judge to rescue his people that they might experience some measure of rest. But here's the structure of the book of Judges. With each passing cycle, Israel, they descended into this downward spiral where repentance became more and more infrequent. And the deliverer, the judge that God gave to them, became less and less holy. And by the time you get to the end of the book, we're shown here in graphic detail a nation that had entirely lost its way, a nation in decline, where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so the days of the judges, it was a dark time, a a period of disobedience, spiritual unfaithfulness on the part of God's people. Well, Well, how did God respond? How did God respond? Well, he did what he said he was going to do. God told Moses back in Deuteronomy 28 to tell the people that if they don't obey the voice of the Lord or be careful to do all his commandments, then all these curses shall come upon you. And one of the curses was upon the fruit of the ground. And so what we find in Ruth chapter 1 verse 1 is that in the days of the judges, in the days when the judges ruled, notice there was a famine in the land. And so Israel's apostasy, it led to God's judgment upon them. Now, I just want to make a comment here that I think is highly relevant for us. That these days in which the judges ruled should not be unfamiliar to our current day. The days in which you and I live are in many ways identical to the days in which the judges ruled. We live in a post-modern age or what some might call a post-post-modern age. Our times are similar where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Our days can be described with a culture that is obsessed with self, which has given rise to what is called the modern self, and it is destructive. For it seems that there's no greater authority, no greater opinion, no greater significance, no greater meaning, no greater standard than self. That's how our world lives. Our culture teaches that self is supreme. But notice what happened in the days of the judges when self-autonomy reigned. It ultimately led to tyranny, the tyranny of a king. What did the people of Israel, after these days of the judges, what what did they really want? They wanted a king. But you see, God was their king. It's just that they didn't recognize nor want him as their king. They wanted a king of their own liking. And so remember in the story, God gave them one in Saul. A blind and arrogant king who was flawed in every way. And so what we discover in Israel's history is that moral chaos where self-autonomy reigned inevitably led to tyranny. It's because they preferred the latter over the former. You see, at the end of the day, human beings cannot live true to their self-autonomous yearnings. They may crave an unrestricted lifestyle, but they'll soon willingly trade it for imposed order. Why? So that they can escape the self-threatening consequences that follow from everyone else's lack of restraint. They only realize how harmful such a life is when they themselves are harmed by others. And so they want a distorted order. And like Israel, the people, they they want a king. But they want one of their own liking. And I wonder, and I wonder, Christian, if that's the path of the current state of our culture, if not already. The people want a king. What Israel forgot was that God was their king. But they forsook him, and they incurred his judgment. And here in the book of Ruth, it came in the form of a famine. And so along with spiritual unfaithfulness, there was hunger. And you see here in the story, their empty stomachs should have been a wake-up call, a blaring alarm to bring them to repentance. C.S. Lewis writes this, that God uses pain to shout to us. That pain is his megaphone to awaken a deaf world. But there was no such turning. In the days in which the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And as this was the time in which the story took place, notice secondly, number two. Notice the location. Look at verse one. It goes on, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons We're told of a man who takes his family and leaves home in Bethlehem to make his way to Moab in search of food. Now, there's some irony here that this man and his family are from Bethlehem. It's because Bethlehem in Hebrew means the house of bread. But here in the story, the city of Bethlehem, the house of bread became an empty bread basket. It became a place of no food. And so this man, Elimelech, he moves his family to Moab. But, but. We need to think for a moment here. The very fact that he moves his family from Bethlehem to Moab should give rise for concern. Well, why? It makes sense, doesn't it? There was a famine in the land. So this family, they left for greener pastures. It's a very simple decision to make, no? It's about fulfilling immediate needs. You got to do what you got to do, right? Well, yes and no. Yes, there was a famine in the land and there appeared to be a surplus of food in Moab. But the problem is this. What did he have to do in order to go get it? Notice two things here. First of all, he went of all places to Moab. He moved his place or he moved his family to the place full of idols to live among the people who are in direct opposition to Israel and to God. Now, what came to mind for an Israelite at the mention of Moab? That they were the very people who sought to destroy Israel when they came out of Egypt. When in the book of Numbers, Balak, the king of Moab, he paid off the false prophet Balaam to curse Israel. And when repeated attempts to do that failed, Balaam, he did the next best thing, seduce the men of Israel with Moabite women in order to get them to the altar of their gods. And so if you're a faithful Israelite, you wanted no part in Moab, no affiliation with Moab. It's because they were Israel's sworn enemy. But not only did he move his family to Moab, but notice, secondly, he left the land which God had promised. He left the one piece of real estate that God had promised to bless, the one place where God himself dwelled. You see, for this man and his family to move to Moab... It meant leaving the means which God had given him to worship. He left the place of worship. The tabernacle was there. Sacrifices were offered there. God's manifest presence was there. Communion with God was enjoyed there. It was the place where God met with his people. And he leaves all of that. Now notice the writer here says nothing as to whether this man was a faithful Israelite or not. He doesn't tell us whether or not he made the right decision, whether it was an act of faith or unbelief. God told Moses to tell the people in Deuteronomy, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, all these curses will come upon you. But he also said this, but if my people will repent, I will withdraw my anger and lift these curses from you. And it appears that this man Elimelech chose his own solution, instead of calling upon God for mercy and repenting of the sins that plagued the nation. This man, rather than living by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, decided to live by bread alone. Beloved, how, how often in the, the decisions that we ourselves make, do we place our convenient needs in mind over against the spiritual? Church, we need to think about that. It's because when we make those kinds of decisions, we don't often think, not realizing the consequences, the consequences that it has upon our souls. This man chose to fulfill his physical appetite at the expense of starving his soul. What was God's object lesson in giving the people of Israel manna from heaven? It wasn't merely to feed them, but to get them to look beyond the manna that was on the ground and to look up to God who gave it to them, that they might trust in him, that they might depend upon him, to communicate to them that if you want to live, you won't live by eating this manna, but you will live by coming to me and trusting in me and following me. That our greatest need and priority and duty is to worship Him and to love Him and to obey Him. That there are more pressing needs than that which satis- that satisfies the physical, but rather the spiritual, the eternal. And so in John chapter 6, you remember in the Gospels, Jesus, He took a little boy's lunch and He fed 5,000 people. Well, why? Was He just providing lunch for the day? No. He said... Don't labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. Beloved, this morning, are you merely in search for for meeting needs that have no bearing for eternity? Are you seeking physical needs that by itself will only spiritually starve you and lead you into a place that you don't want to go? Labor for the food that endures to eternal life. And you see, although Bethlehem, the house of bread, here in this story in the book of Ruth, was empty, listen to the gospel. The gospel is this. God sent his son, the true bread from heaven, to come to us from that very place in Bethlehem. Sent from heaven into a place called Bethlehem, the house of bread, the bread of life came to sinners like you and I to live and die on the cross on behalf of those whom he would come to save. And he rose again three days later and he broke through the tomb that he might give sinners eternal life. And so this morning, if you are without Christ, come to him, come to him in repentance and faith. Trust in him to provide for you this eternal food. Well, coming back to the book of Ruth, it seems like rather than trusting God, this man trusted in himself. And so he moved him and his family from Bethlehem to Moab. Maybe the God of the Moabites, Chemosh, can take better care of us than the God of Israel, Yahweh. Well, notice we move now to the third observation that the writer wants us to see in the people, the people involved in the story, verse 3. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. We're given the names of this family, and what should stand out to us is the name of the man. Well, how so? It's because his name is Elimelech, Elimelech, which in Hebrew means My God is king. And just like the irony with Bethlehem, the house of bread, really having no food, Elimelech, my God is king, lived as if God was not king at all. He moves into the country of Moab with his family. And I want you to notice here that the writer gives us a hint that it wasn't just a a temporary stay. It seems like Elimelech's stay in Moab went well for him and his family. He got used to the pagan surroundings. The family got a little bit comfortable. And after a while, Moab became home. Look with me in verse 1. We're told that he went to sojourn in the country of Moab. That's his initial intention, to sojourn there, to be there for possibly a brief period of time. But look at verse 2. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. You see the slow influence of Moab lulled this man to spiritual slumber going about life not really thinking about it but drifting through it without God on his mind but here's what happens next verse 3 but Elimelech the husband of Naomi died and she was left with her two sons it's as if the writer has taken out what we thought was to be the main character of the story We've been tracking with Elimelech this whole time. The man from Bethlehem who left the land, who took his family to move to Moab. This is where our eyes have been directed. This is who we were following. But tragedy strikes and the man is gone. He's dead. We're not told how. We're not told why. We're told very much as a matter of fact, without detail, without feeling. But what we can safely gather is this. That while Elimelech... Remained in Moab, possibly in comfort, possibly in ease, possibly having what he thought was his most important needs met, like food. He died. That's a tragedy, isn't it? What a sad and pitiful existence. While the world might tell us that this man lived happy and carefree, and to celebrate such a life, we as Christians, we think differently. It's tragic. may it never be, Christian, that our lives would be reduced to this, where we simply want our needs met. This is not the life God calls us to live, nor the life that we ought want to live. Paul tells Timothy to tell the churches in 1 Timothy 6 to store up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That's truly life. And this is something Elimelech failed to grasp, rather living for this present age and not the life to come. Now as Elimelech dies, notice who's left. A woman by the name of Naomi. And here she was left now with her two sons. But now, as head of her household, she, she had a decision to make. Do I return back to Bethlehem? Do I repent and go back to the to the home, to where God is, where I belong, or do I stay in exile? Well, seeing that life was still better in Moab, notice that she stayed with her two boys and in time found for her sons as they grew up, she found for them Moabite wives. Even though the law of God has specifically commanded Israel not to do so, she made the decision, like her husband, to choose convenience over obedience. Verse 4. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. Well, why didn't she return? Why didn't she turn things around for her family? I think because once the path of disobedience was paved and entered upon, it was easier to continue to doing so, to keep doing so. I think because to remain in Moab. Was the path of least resistance. And we know how that works, right? It's easier to stay on the road of sin than it is to repent and turn around. Now, even after Elimelech died, notice Naomi, she's still in a reasonably well situation in her life. She had her two sons, after all. They were young and they were married. She had two daughters in law to help her. She was still going to be taken care of by her now grown sons. There was the prospect of a happy and a a bright future. Grandsons and uh, granddaughters and an ever-growing family. Things were going to be okay. And notice that for 10 years, that appeared to be the case. But the worst was yet to come for Naomi. Look at verse 5. And both Malon and Kilion died. And what was more painful than the first loss, Naomi loses not just one son, but both her sons. Again, we're not told how. We're not told why. And I think because the writer is wanting to focus our attention upon Naomi to see her loss and to see her grief, to see her devastation. To see that all the comforts that she once had, they have now been stripped away. Her whole world has come crashing down. She had gone from a wife to now widow, a mother to now childless. She was now left alone. She has suffered the loss of all that she was. This was a woman who was severely afflicted. And so afflicted that notice notice how the writer describes the situation by the end of verse 5. Look with me in verse 5. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Do you notice something here that's missing at the end of verse 5 here? It's her name. The writer purposefully removes her name, Naomi, and simply calls her the woman. It's because she had lost everything. Even in her own eyes, her identity And as we take a step back, you can just imagine with me this woman then facing three graves, life devastated, heart shattered, comforts stripped. Well, what is God doing? What is God doing in this woman's life? And what is He doing by bringing these painful afflictions upon her? And to say it more personally, why why does He bring such suffering in our own lives? Why do we experience trouble and sorrow? Notice in verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people. You see, in all the sufferings in which this woman was dealt, God was drawing her back to himself. You might not call her the prodigal son. Rather, we call her the prodigal daughter who had squandered her life in Moab. She left home because she sought her own needs, her own comforts, her her own wants, only to have it all ripped away from her. And so what was her father in heaven doing in pouring out all these afflictions upon her? And here's the answer, bringing her home and back to himself. You see, beloved, our trials, they don't happen by chance or by what we might call bad luck. But our trials are the very workings of a father who loves us and seeks to draw us to himself to to deliver ourselves from our own self-dependency and our self-pride. You see, he breaks us in order to save us. And that from ourselves. And to make us and to etch us into the likeness of one who is better, his son. And we know, Paul tells us in Romans 8, well, what do we know? That for those who love God, all things, even our sorrows, our pain, our losses, our trials, our afflictions, all things work together for good. And everyone uses that verse. Well, the big question is, what is that good? What is the good purpose of God in my life that all things are working together for? It's not to give me my sin's desires, but rather to conform me into the image of his son. Why does God bring trials and afflictions into our lives? Very simply, he's making us holy. That's why everything that is happening around you is taking place, to make you holy. You see, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And we ask as we close, well, how does he deliver me? He delivers me by saving me through and through. Church, that's the promise we have. And oh, let us find great comfort in that, that God does all things well, and that for our souls which is why we can sing, which is why we can sing, it is well with my soul. Amen? Let's pray together. Gracious God and Father, we acknowledge that there are seasons in our lives in which the dark clouds of your providence shadow over us. At times we suffer little, and other times we suffer much. but what we know is that you love us. And all that we experience in this life is not meant to harm us, but to make us holy, to make us more faithful sons and daughters of our Father in heaven, and that by etching us closer into the image of our brother and Savior, Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, would you do that in us and give us the grace to trust you more. To the name of our great God and Savior, we pray. Amen.